Since the newest coronavirus was first reported at the beginning of the year, the topic has dominated headlines internationally. While some coronaviruses, such as SARS and MERS, have caused devastating epidemics, others cause mild to moderate respiratory infections. The newest coronavirus, called COVID-19, is now responsible for tens of thousands of infections throughout the world, and the global scientific community is working nonstop to develop a test to detect the virus and prevent the future spread. On this episode of Science with a Twist, we will talk with Joshua Trotta, a senior director of genetic sciences at Thermo Fisher Scientific, who is helping oversee the company's collaboration with government and industry groups to accelerate diagnostic testing and vaccine development. Joshua, thank you for joining us. We've been talking recently and reading a lot about the uh, the spread of a virus, which was you know detected in, in China and has now spread to as many countries around the world as, as, as there are. Um, what is Thermo Fisher doing in response to the coronavirus? Yeah, so Thermo Fisher has, had a, has played multiple roles uh, in kind of looking at how to address the coronavirus. So kind of twofold really is um, enabling our customers with tools that can help create new diagnostics uh, and as well have instrumentation that can detect the virus. So that's one. The second one is actually developing using kind of our innovation engine of deep roots of science and technology innovation to actually develop our own tools. You know, if, if somebody's looking for uh, a specific type of test that maybe the CDC doesn't make or the WHO doesn't make, that we have tools that can help them there as well. For the benefit of our listeners, what exactly is the coronavirus? So the coronavirus is a, it's a novel virus uh, that actually comes from the corona family. Uh, so it's unique, unlike, uh, let's say, SARS, which was a coronavirus. Uh, this particular strain of coronavirus is a, is a novel virus, and it's an infectious agent that is creating symptoms probably not, not too dissimilar to like a flu. Uh, so there's lots of viruses that can do this. This is a, a new one. One of the questions that we have heard often is how is the virus transmitted from one individual to another? Can you give us a, a sense of how that happens? Yeah, so it's not too dissimilar. Um, a lot of times people think, oh, this is unique and totally different than anything we've ever seen. And while genetically that is true, um, the transmission is very much like uh, getting the flu. Uh, so things like being able to pass things from your hands to your mouth. Maybe you touch something, maybe you're you know, going into large crowded spaces, somebody coughs on you. Uh, it's being able to be transmitted through saliva, aerosolization, if, if I can use that term of, you know, just people getting fluid out of their mouths. And that virus can stay alive. So if you touch something, just like kids bringing back the flu from daycare, uh, the same way that happens with the coronavirus. So are there steps that a person can take in order to avoid the likelihood of acquiring the infection? Yeah, so the key things that you can use are just kind of basic hygiene. It's not super exciting of nature, but uh, you know, being able to wash your hands regularly, being aware that if you're out in public places and you're you know, touching lots of surfaces, uh, the same would be true for the coronavirus as it is, again, for the flu, is that you don't want to you know, touch all these things and then go eat at uh, you know, a restaurant where you're using your hands, for instance, right, yeah, without actually having to wash. Other areas uh, you can see is you know, utilization of masks. 
that comes just like uh, anything. It's like it's only as good as you apply it. So if you kind of pseudo put your mask on or, you know, uh, you, you actually aren't really abiding by the, the right type of mask that will actually filter out a virus, you got to do your homework a little bit uh, as far as utilizing it correctly and buying the right type of mask. So we read recently that the CDC had received emergency use authorization for yep. a test to detect the coronavirus. Yeah. What was Thermo Fisher's role in helping the CDC obtain that emergency use authorization, and I guess specifically the development of the test? Correct. Yeah. So Thermo Fisher's uh, specific you know, actions in supporting the CDC is to be a tools provider. Uh, so when you look at the emergency youth authorization, uh, what you specifically see are guidelines. It's kind of like a recipe book of what you can and cannot do. So it's like making cookies. There are certain things that you have to put in that particular recipe to follow. In this particular case, what is included in that recipe book for the coronavirus detection from the CDC, from Thermo Fisher, is our master mixes, our instrumentation on the QPCR instrument, and then there's recommendations for various you know, plates and tubes and things like water and extraction devices. So there's a host of products that Thermo Fisher actually makes that goes into that, that recipe book. You know, now that the CDC is shipping these kits to labs mm -hmm. for purposes of validation, yep. what are you working on now? Like, what's the next right. big development as it relates to the ability to detect the coronavirus? There are multiple ways, again, not just continuing to look at the robustness of manufacturing for the CDC. So one piece is to say as they scale and they need more tests, uh, so internally we work manufacturing across the globe to be able to supply the tools, not just the, the reagents, but the instrumentation. But then, as I mentioned earlier, is the innovation side of things. Uh, so looking at as more knowledge of the coronavirus becomes available, and when I say knowledge, using things like next-gen sequencing to look at the genome coverage of the virus. More information becomes available that people can design better tools, what we call assays, which are the tests that the CDC has made, that can be more specific, can be more sensitive. Uh, so specifically, our group is working on developing different iterations of tests that can be used by ministries of health, other global entities around the world, should they need a, a solution that they're not buying from the CDC. What exactly is an assay? So an assay is a genetic tool uh, that actually helps you identify a virus or a bacteria. So it's being able to kind of match up that genetic material in one piece versus the other that says you either have this genetic information because I've compared you against this test or you don't. You provided me with an example earlier about the Lucky Charms yeah. cereal. Can you, you know, using the Lucky Charms yeah. scenario or the Lucky Charms analogy, sure. talk about, you know, how the coronavirus may or may not be, you know, yeah. present in, 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 in my Lucky Charms. Yeah. So hopefully you don't have coronavirus in your Lucky Charms. But yeah, using it as the analogy is, you know, within Lucky Charms, you have different types of marshmallows. So imagine that the coronavirus is the rainbow marshmallow and your cereal bowl is your genetic makeup. An assay would actually try to detect the rainbow. And so when you actually apply that, you would take that rainbow, which is the qPCR assay, and you would look over your bowl 
And you would say, is there any rainbows? Are there any rainbows that are in my cereal bowl? And if so, that is a match. And you would say you have coronavirus. If not, then you would say you don't have the coronavirus. doesn't mean that there isn't something else that makes you sick, but you can say that you don't have the coronavirus. I know that qPCR has been around for a long time. Can you talk about what 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 is qPCR? How would I describe yeah. qPCR? How would I explain it to someone who didn't know what it was? Yeah, so qPCR has been around for over twenty five years. It's a detection uh, methodology that is akin to identifying uh, using genetic information to identify bacteria, viruses, fungal targets. So historically, people have used culture for many years, uh, which is still a robustly and routinely used uh, technology. But it's in this particular case, uh, it allows you to do something faster. It's being able to use genetic information to identify a pathogen in a very short period of time. And prior to the CDC announcement that they had developed a test, there was a kind of this race, if you will, Mm. to develop a test. Talk about what it is that encompasses the time to develop a test. Why does it take so long or or what's the process that you have to go through in order to develop a test? Sure. So most outbreaks, and this one is no different, is that you would start by saying, asking the question of why are people getting sick? We don't understand. So something happens. In this case, someone was getting sick and people couldn't understand why. And the first thing that most outbreaks will do is they will use a next generation next generation sequencing technology to globally look at the sample to say what is it is it a bacteria is it fungal is it viral is it something that we have no idea what it is and it allows you to start narrowing down what you're dealing with once they've done that and as in the case of the the chinese government they actually published their next gen sequencing results which allowed people to actually see that it was in the coronavirus family. Not only was it a coronavirus compared to like SARS, which is also a coronavirus, is that it's a novel coronavirus. So it's something that they kind of knew what, what it was, they've narrowed it down, but now there's something new about this particular one. So what you have to do once you identify that is that instead of running that big broad screen over and over again, which can be cost of prohibitive for you know trying to ramp up to millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people, people move into designing specific qPCR assays to detect just that area that you have now identified. So to do that, we use something that's called bioinformatics tools. So it's designing specific genetic sequences and assays that cover that region. Then, unlike you know some of the other technologies, qPCR can give you results in, in a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour time frame at a much reduced cost. It's also a technology because it's been around for you know over 25 years that a lot of people already use today for other things, you know, uh, for other viruses, for other bacteria, for research applications. So the the prevalence of instrumentation is out there. So it's something that you can now push more broadly uh, to groups of people that already have these instruments and now can actually use them to specifically look at something like the coronavirus. How does the virus's genetic code factor into the development of the test? The genetic code plays into the test, which is, again, you want to be very specific about identifying just that virus. So when you develop the test, you need to really understand what is the genetic makeup of that virus so that you can create the most specific tests. Because I, you know, 
just like for you or for me, I don't want you to tell me a, a test that says, I'm 30% sure you've got the coronavirus. I want you to give me an answer so that I can feel confident behind it. So that's what we call specificity. So you want something to be specifically targeting something that you're concerned that I have. And if you're not sure and you have a lower specificity, that means that you could put me into a quarantine with somebody when I shouldn't have been in quarantine, right? So I, I want to make sure understanding the virus, knowing the details will help you design very specific assays for detection. We've read about the difficulty in getting protective equipment to parts of the world mm -hmm. where it's needed most. And, right. and I know Thermo Fisher is doing what it can to try to keep up with the demand. But as I think about the number of samples that will ultimately need to be tested, mm. what are we doing to ensure that labs are able, able to keep up with the demand for testing? Again, I, I think it goes back to a couple of ways to answer that. One is because the instrumentation that we manufacture as Thermo Fisher Scientific is utilized globally and there's an increasing demand. So just scaling our manufacturing capabilities for instrumentation. So that's one. The second thing is then the actual test scaling manufacturing for groups like the CDC and the WHO for that matter, who also use components of our master mixes. Um, so being able to ramp and scale and be in connection with those partners to meet the demands that they have. And then the third piece is obviously working with other entities, ministries of health that are looking for tests that maybe Thermo Fisher has designed in our innovation to meet their demands, understand what their needs are, to make sure that they have these tools available to them so that they can not only just look at our analytical performance, but actually clinically test them for themselves. So everyone that has a respiratory infection is not necessarily have the coronavirus. Right. Talk a little bit about how technology enables you to differentiate between the different sources of infection using, for example, a multi-panel test. That's right. Yeah. So if you look at the, the symptoms um, associated with the coronavirus, how, how do you differentiate between whether somebody has the flu that's you know pretty prevalent and spreading across the, the globe right now, or if you have the coronavirus, or if you have some bacteria? So the beauty of technologies like qPCR, um, we have something that's called like a syndromic approach, uh, which is having multiple assays or targets that you can design for, and you can test for them all at once. So in a case like what Thermo Fisher has designed, we have a test that can look at 42 different targets, and it will look at the most common bacterial, viral, and fungal targets that cause respiratory illness. So imagine you walk in, somebody suspects that you have the coronavirus. On that test is something that will say yes or no that you have the coronavirus, or no, you don't have the coronavirus. If the answer is no, wouldn't it be great to say, but I'm still miserable, that's why I came to you in the first place, that you actually have a bacteria and there's a specific antibiotic that will be used to treat you. Or that you have flu and it's just flu A, which they're going to tell you to go home, get some rest and drink some fluids. There have been any number of these type of uh, epidemics or, mm, or yeah. you know, infections that seem to affect large numbers of people. What have we learned as a company that enables us to respond to these type of situations more quickly? Over my 13 years with the company, uh, I've been involved in H1N1, uh, MERS, SARS, Ebola. There's a host of ways. You know, I think Thermo Fisher Scientific is really 
uh, has tools that reach across the broad spectrum of needs. Uh, and, and the ways that we've kind of been able to hone that over the years is to say, who are the groups that we need to work with immediately? Who are those call points? Developing partnerships and relationships with groups like the World Health Organization, like the US CDC, so that there's a confidence and there's a trust level, um, not just in the times of outbreak, but you know, as they look at us as trusted partners. So maintaining those relationships and, and supporting them with their needs prior to and after the, this, this outbreak occurs. So continuing to do that, and then also looking at ways of when an outbreak happens to be responsive. Uh, one way that the company has worked is, is just dedicating core teams that say, hey, this is going to be your job. We're going to dedicate this team to focus on this. This is an, an important moment uh, in public health. We're well suited to help address unmet needs. Let's really live by the mantra of making the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. This is our opportunity to shine. So I think you know being able to step up and be able to step into that, that moment of what we are good at and actually living up to our mission. If you could just talk about the importance of detection or the importance of testing. You would say detection is the beginning of ensuring that we don't spread things. That, that is the beginning. Detection really is that, that starting point um, by knowing that you can actually make good decisions from that point. You know, we talked a little bit about the sample in the context of it's a swab, nasal swab, throat swab. If you could just help us understand how you get from swab to test result, that would be really helpful. Imagine a swab for any of our listeners that don't know what that is. Imagine a big Q-tip that is long. And if you've ever had the, the unpleasant experience of going to your doctor because you thought you had strep throat, it's the same approach. Um, they're going to take a sample from your throat or from your nose and they'll pull out what seems like nothing, but it will have you know material on that, which that material is, is what you want to extract to get your DNA. Uh, so being able to get that DNA extracted, Thermo Fisher Scientific also makes kits that do that. Specifically, we have one that is focused on viral pathogens uh, and extracts the DNA. So that's kind of the starting point of, we gotta get the DNA so that if we go back to our Lucky Charms example, that we can do some comparisons of understanding if the rainbow is there. So the DNA extraction works uh, that way. And then you will actually move over into using, let's say, the multiplex assay. So you combine those pieces together with the single tube, the sample that they've taken, and some, some other reagents, and you put it onto an instrument. And it'll run for a few hours, and a result will come back that will say, the lucky charm rainbow is there or does not. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of Science with a Twist. We'll be back again next week for a fascinating episode about one nonprofit who's making a difference in the global science community. Until then, please consider subscribing to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. And don't forget to leave us a review. See you next time on Science with a Twist.